Hello and welcome to the Endurance Coach Podcast. My name is Mark Laithwaite and I'm here today with my co-hosts, ultra runner and sports psychologist, Dr. Ian Bordley, and also with sports injury specialist, Mike James, aka the Endurance Physio. Each week, we'll be telling you what's new in the world of endurance sports. We're going to have some amazing guests on the show and we'll be discussing how you can reach your true potential on race day. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 30 of the Endurance Podcast. Now, this is a great interview with Dr. Mark Burnley, Senior Physiology Lecturer and Sports Scientist at the University of Kent. We caught up with Mark, Ian and myself a long time ago, where we wanted to chat about a number of areas around physiology. We chatted about threshold and training zones, FTP, power meters, exercise testing and its relevance to the recreational athlete and much much more mark has also got a fantastic youtube channel that's gathered lots of momentum and interest and we strongly urge you to check out all out physiology now we originally held on to this content put it in the vault and thought we'll bring it out later in bite-sized chunks unfortunately we never got round to it life and everything else got in the way but rather than it not being used, we wanted to edit it and throw it out now for you guys to consume. So remember, do check out All Out Physiology. There's much more on that YouTube channel now than there was at the time of recording. We hope you enjoy the show. Okay, so we're going to move across to our interview with our guest today. Uh, very pleased to have with us Dr. Mark Burnley, uh, who's an exercise physiologist. And some of you may have um, already seen because he's got his own YouTube channel. Um, that he's recently started and actually in tweets of the week a couple of weeks ago I did um, include a tweet for one of those videos so um, we're very pleased to have Mark on the show today and we can explore some of the content that's on that YouTube channel um, but also discuss some other relevant topics around endurance performance as well so um, I'll I'll let Mark introduce himself properly now but welcome to the show Mark. Uh, hi there. Yes. So uh, my name is Dr. Mark Burnley. I'm a senior lecturer from the University of Kent, and I've been interested in endurance physiology for uh, at least 20 years now academically. Um, started cycling when I was a kid. When I got to university, I took up running as well, joined triathlon club, realized I couldn't swim, so then did duathlons. And and ever since then, I've I've sort of migrated towards running. So I've run a number of marathons. I've supported ultra marathoners and marathoners doing their training as well. So I've had both uh, a personal interest in actually my own performance, but also helping others. And then I've had my own research lines looking at various aspects of endurance performance, power duration relationship and fatigue mechanisms as well. Uh, and as Ian said, I've, I've recently started up my own YouTube channel which is called All Out Physiology. So if you want to check that out, that's, uh, you know, you could like and subscribe as well. That's always good. Um, so the, I think it's probably worth talking about the purpose of that. The The reason I got into YouTube is I've always also been really interested in the public engagement of scientists uh, with members of the general public. And of course, sports science is one of those, which is obviously really open to that because of the interest in all sorts of different sports and particularly endurance sports. So what I wanted to do with the channel was essentially use my um, my own understanding of very technical things and try and break them down, make them understandable uh, without actually compromising the physiological basis of it. So I didn't want to dumb it down, but I didn't want to blow people away either. And I think YouTube's very good for that because typically you want about 10, 15 tops, 20 minutes content, which means I can't just vomit my old lectures onto YouTube because they're too long. And what I've done so far, and I want to keep doing it, is is make bespoke content, which I kind of come up with in the week because it's fresh and it's interesting, but it's something that 
I think people will find both interesting and useful. Uh, so there's things to try and demystify some of the, the more technical physiological things we do. There's some applied stuff in there. There's some um, topical things that are, that are going on. And in terms of the aim of it, it's really just to provide people with interesting things physiologically that they can grab onto and understand. So there's not really any greater purpose beyond that. Um, so I've had quite a few academics say to me, oh, this is great. I'm going to use this. I'm going to embed it in my my teaching. So that's great. I've had coaches say this is this is nice because it's kind of broken it down for me. Um, so it, it's been really nice to have that feedback. And it's it's, it's partly also because I'm you know, in a, in a stage of my life at the moment where I'm not currently affiliated with any particular university. Although I've said I'm with the University of Kent at the moment. I'm um, kind of between jobs. So it, it also gives me an opportunity to kind of maintain my teaching proficiency. But at the same time, th there's other things that I've been working on. So I'm working on a, a book, which some of the content from the channel is going into as well. Um, so hopefully, you know, those two things will be quite symbiotic as well. So th there's all sorts of things that I'm wanting to put in there. At the moment, I've got um, a, a series on the kinetics of oxygen uptake and its relation to performance. Uh, I've got uh, some videos on the lactate threshold and threshold concepts related to training. Um, and in the future, I'm hoping to do a series on fatigue mechanisms. Um, and essentially, the other thing I really want to do is just finish off because I've already done the lactate threshold. I want to look at other physiological parameters that you measure in a laboratory and just break those down as well. So things like VO2 max, economy, efficiency, um, and, and, and you know various heart rate parameters that are often used as well and what they mean physiologically and what they can mean in the real world as well. So those are the kinds of things that I'm trying to do with the channel, but it's all quite new to me as well. So I've only been doing it about six weeks, uh, but the, the reaction I've had to it is phenomenal. It's kind of you know, when you when you do a lecture at university, kind of all the students walk in, they kind of sit there. Some of them are asleep. They all kind of walk out again. And you don't really get that kind of feedback. I mean, there will be a few people come and ask you a few follow up questions, but they don't go, oh, that was really good because students don't do that. Whereas, you know, the general public and people who follow me on Twitter have been really complimentary about it. So it's been quite a quite a positive experience. And I think academics ought to do it more. I think there's you know, you see quite a few YouTube channels run by universities and they end up looking really corporate. You've kind of got all the, you know, the uh, audio visual stuff going on. And then there's usually it cuts to uh, a middle-aged academic with a lapel mic kind of mumbling about their research. So if you think about the target audience there, universities are probably trying to excite 16, 17, 18 year olds to kind of apply to them. I'm not sure that content necessarily works. Um, but you see on YouTube, you know, videos on Minecraft get, you know, 10 million hits. So and these are just kids sitting in their bedroom doing that stuff. So, you know, how you use the medium, I think, is quite important as well. So what I've tried to do in terms of, of, of the channel is keep it um, as fresh and as um, conversational as possible, even though I'm talking to a PowerPoint slide. Um, I'm, I'm not trying to lecture and I haven't called them lectures because they're a they're too short and b they don't have learning outcomes they're not that's not the purpose of them they're there to really uh, inform people who might not know much about physiology you know some pretty deep physiology so I have some friends of mine who are not physiologists have said oh yeah I've kind of got my head around exercise intensity domains now I didn't know any of that before so that's been really positive too so that's essentially where I am with with YouTube at the moment yeah, no, that's great. Um, yeah, um, I, I've obviously watched a few of them, and, and Mike and myself were chatting earlier about who your uh, target audience might be in terms of um, the videos, and we said sort of sports scientists would probably find, really find it easy to, and accessible, um, mm -hmm. but, but with enough depth for it to be meaningful for them. Interesting that you mentioned coaches as well, but also athletes, I think, who've got sort of a, a scientific background will be able to get straight in there and sort of mm. take a look but I think even just the athletic population generally we, we were thinking you know there'll be some key take-homes from each mm. of the videos I think that most people can uh, uh, can access from them and I think that was one of the reasons why we thought it'd be really good to sort of have you on the show because th that's similar to the sort of audience that we've got as well mm. uh, so um, yeah, you, you mentioned the book there 
I don't know if you wanted to say a little bit more about the book that you're writing, or is that a little bit under wraps at the moment? It's not really under wraps. Um, What I'm trying to do with it is write a popular science book on exercise physiology. So um, what I'm trying to do with that is, is essentially explain how the body works during exercise to an audience that Although, you know, because popular science is, is the way it is, people who are, are educated, but not in that particular area. Um, so, you know, I've got chapters on things like I've got a training chapter. I've got a chapter on warm up, mainly because that's what I, I did for my first research line. Uh, I'm going to have chapters on how the muscle works, the heart works, the guts, the skin thing and, and pu- trying to pull out various exercise physiology interventions that can also enhance performance as well so what i'm the 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 audience i'm trying to pitch that at really are recreational athletes because there's lots of books on um how the elites train and all of this kind of stuff but there's not that much that caters to you know people who see themselves as an athlete without being a pro so the, the fact that in in any race 99% of people won't win but they race anyway which is an interesting uh thing so they're they're obviously racing for themselves and within themselves and they're competing against themselves in many respects and it's it's going to be written for that population and that's what I'm trying to aim for what I found though is writing popular science when you spent 20 years writing academic science is really hard because you know, take something that to you as an academic seems simple, like I don't know, lactate, and then try and explain how that all fits in to somebody who's never studied exercise biochemistry is, and, and actually make it understandable is really tough. So that's one of the things I've had to do is when, whenever you write academically, you're normally writing along the lines so of you, you finish the sentence and then you have a bracket and you, you open it up and say, right now I need to put a reference in here. I've really tried to steer away from that and talk, and have a, a kind of a conversational uh, writing style that avoids having to reference every other sentence because that's it then gets boring and technical and try and keep it lively, I suppose. So, yeah, it's something that's I've, I've, com- I've fully completed one chapter. I've got two other chapters that are nearly done and then all the others are kind of planned out, some better than others. But my plan is to essentially at the moment get two more chapters written and then I've got enough for a synopsis to then start talking to agents and that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say you'd be seeing this book this year, but it's it's something that's going to be you know, developed quite strongly over the summer, I guess. So uh, that's that's one of my little projects on the on the go at the moment. Yeah, no, it sounds sounds interesting. It might be good to get you back on once the, the book's finished and we can yeah. have a, a chat about that. But yeah, no pressure. Yeah, no, yeah. One of the one of the cool things I'm seeing a lot of authors do now is link YouTube channels to the book. They start mm. putting QR codes. Yeah, yeah. a really nice way to to expand some of the the stuff you're trying to simplify as and when you need to. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, that so that was also, also partly one of the ideas the about the book. Oh, not the book. The the YouTube channel was to have that platform uh to to go off and you know highlight the book or if i do go into any consultancy there's that as well so you know i can say you know here's a portfolio of stuff that i do you know here's the audience i've got for it so therefore you know there's you know you can go on and 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 market yourself in that way so that that does open itself up as well yeah no i think there's, there's definitely some analogies there in terms of what you were talking about in terms of um academic writing to writing that book in sort of a popular mm. science style and, and what you're talking about in terms of delivering a lecture at the university to the students mm. and yeah um, and then the youtube channel because it, it allows you to just focus on the real sort of interesting bits that people want to um to to, to get the take-homes but they don't necessarily need all that background and the understanding yeah. where the evidence comes from and i guess that's the the difference between uh, delivering a lecture to, to students on a, on a particular module and then being able to yeah. do a, a video on the YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a few things that you mentioned in there that are some of the topics that we'd like to, to pick up on. But before we sort of start to, to, um, to look at some of those, I was just wondering if there's anything else on the, the YouTube channel specifically that Mike wanted to ask or comment on. A lot of my questions were about what was coming up on the YouTube channel, which you've, you've alluded to anyway. Um, 
I certainly understand that difficulty between finding the pitch, getting mm. that pitch of science across. Um, the thing that I had noticed, which is which is nice to see, which a lot of that similar type of channel doesn't have, you seem to get really good interaction in the comments boxes. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, and from a variety of different people as well. So um, some of them are, are, and some of them have said, you know, could could you have a video on this? which I hadn't actually considered before. Because one of the things that is always a little bit, I suppose, worrying when you set up a channel like that, there's two things. The first is how frequently do you put content up and do you feel guilty if you don't put the content up? Um, so, so far I've been doing weekly videos. I, I'm not sure I'm necessarily going to have enough content to carry that on, but uh, we'll, we'll see how we go with it. But then, you know, how much content can I put up on there in terms of, you know, what's what's the the bandwidth of topics i can come up with to keep it going so i've really done all the low-hanging fruit so far in terms of doing stuff that i'm interested in or doing stuff that i've done research in so it, it's actually quite easy to put those videos together uh, it's going to get to the point where i've run out of things to say about the things i've studied before and i'm going to have to start looking at new topics and that's when it's going to get a little bit more challenging i think because i'm not working on stuff that i've got first-hand knowledge of and and then the difficulty comes, well, you know, I've got to get on top of the topic and then try and break it down and explain it. Um, but that's really no different to kind of running a, a module in a university that you don't normally study before. So when I got to Kent, the thing I was given was functional anatomy and I hadn't taught anatomy for 15 years. So you have to kind of pick up all the, the nuances of, of that topic. And anatomy is not that easy to teach to first year students anyway, because it's usually the one that they're all bored with. So trying to make that come to life is is also part of the reason why I wanted to do YouTube as well, to try and, you know, be able to to, to essentially be, you know, do something that's interesting and, and try and make it as interesting as possible. Uh, because I, I think I, you'd have to ask the students, but I think I managed to make, you know, basic anatomy quite interesting because you, you what you essentially do is you, you tell stories with it so that you know the fact that the uh the the head of the femur and the hip joint don't actually fit together properly unless you're on all fours because we used to be on all fours and there's all sorts of problems associated with hip because of that in humans so bringing that kind of thing to life and then kind of showing everybody how that all kind of fits together is also what the, the channel's trying to be about as well so um there's you know, although I've got some playlists on things like VO2 kinetics, I'm going to have some a playlist on lactate, playlist on exercise testing. Hopefully, if, if my plan works, I'll be able to kind of put all of that together in one kind of giant ecosystem of, you know, this is exercise physiology and here are all the elements to it. And so by the time I've kind of got to, the, not the end, but got to, you know, a, a sizable amount of content, you should be able to look at my channel and say, if I want a kind of a primer on the whole of exercise physiology, you can go to all out physiology and find it. And that's sort of what I'm trying to, in the very long term, aim to do. That, that sounds like there's going to be enough content to keep you going for a little while then. Yes, yeah, so let's hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, nice Mike. I think with the interaction, I find it on my, um, my social media channels that probably now because i certainly got to that point where oh, i've run out of stuff that i wanted to talk about mm. but that interaction they give you so much content to, to think mm. about yeah um and sometimes it's things you'd thought about but in a different light and you're like that's a much better angle to come at this than i thought of and i i get really personally quite stimulated then and, and quite keen to, to please the people who want the stuff that they want mm. so um yeah i think i, I really when i made that leap over to interact more with the the sort of you know the, the so what to the everyday person yeah um i can relate to a lot of the stuff that you said and um i think i've been it's about five six years i've been doing it now and um the hardest bit now is is that drumbeat it's mm. that making the time to make content how often is is not enough too much yeah um it, it it's hard it gets hard after a while mm. i think i, I I'm not honestly sure I'd be doing this if I was still in an academic post just because of it takes two to three hours minimum to put one of these videos together. 
And if I was in post, could I justify those two or three hours as being in the evening when I should be spending time with my my wife and my son and eating dinner and that kind of stuff? So the the, the state I'm in, or the, the 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 situation I'm in at the moment is is the perfect situation to do this because I'll wake up on a Monday morning or I'll go for a run and something will pop into my head. Oh, that's interesting, and by Thursday that I've got a few slides together and that's this week's video. So. I'm I'm also trying to keep it kind of loose as well. So I think towards the, you know, as we're coming into the summer and more of the sport opens up and the Olympics and so forth, let's assuming it's still going on. I think what I might do with the channel is start to do some much more applied stuff. So, you know, this happened in the Tour de France today. What does it mean? Why did this person do this and that person do that? What's the physiology underneath it kind of thing? And then use some of the literature and bring that in and try and explain how you can, as a sports scientist, understand what's going on in the real world um, and, and what what the, the basic physiology underneath that might be. So I used, I used to do, I still do to an extent, do some blogging. Um, but I've, I've, in migrating to YouTube, I found that that's kind of a much more immediate and much more impactful way of, uh, of of exploring these sorts of issues because you can kind of think it through as you're presenting it as well so when i do the videos i don't edit any of them it's just a one take as if i was walking into a lecture theater there it is it's done and then i just upload it to youtube and if people like it they like it if they don't they don't and luckily so far i haven't had any dislikes so uh, it's, it's got to be going well in one way so yeah there's no module evaluation at the end so. exactly yeah yeah with three people saying they hated you yeah <laughs> yeah, that's right. um yeah no it sounds great um and uh, hopefully people will start to engage with it more you know as, as a result of uh, our discussions today i think it'd be good to sort to start to sort of get into one or two particular topics that i think might be um interesting and some of the things that we mentioned sort of in advance of the interview that discussing and you mentioned i think one of the um one of the videos is on lactate threshold but one of the things that's quite interested in and things that we've discussed in the past have been sort of some of the sort of key misunderstandings or people things that people sort of misunderstand or misinterpret or misapply within their own training um yeah. i think sort of thresholds more generally is probably one of those areas isn't it so i was just Wondering from your own experiences where you see some of those sort of key misunderstandings are around sort of people's understanding of thresholds. Yeah, I think um, some of the misunderstandings of thresholds, I think, derives directly from physiologists not necessarily explaining them very well. And we are our own worst enemies. So what, on the, the lactate thr threshold video that's up, there's a, a really nice figure from Jamnik et al, which shows about 13 or 14 different threshold measurements on the same lactate curve and you think well if sports scientists can't agree to within 13 different definitions what hope has anybody who's not a specialist in the area got of of working their way through which threshold to use and what it means physiologically so what i mean my very first video was actually on this this idea of which threshold should you use in your training and what I tried to argue there was there's really only two thresholds that you need to know about. There's the lactate threshold in the sense of the first increase in blood lactate during incremental exercise. And the second threshold is the maximal steady state or the critical power, uh, which is where if you exercise above that, you cannot stabilize lactate or VO2. But if you exercise below it, you can. And the reason for those two being key is because if you exercise below lactate threshold, you can attain a steady state within a few minutes. If you exercise above lactate threshold, that steady state is delayed by about 15 to 20 minutes. And if you exercise above critical power, there is no steady state whatsoever. Your, all your physiological systems are going to keep developing until you're exhausted. And that exhaustion is going to take place in less than 20 or 30 minutes. So... The reason that's important and the reason that that's misunderstood by both physiologists and by athletes is because nobody can necessarily agree on what the lactate threshold is in terms of how you measure it. And there's all sorts of different methods that give slightly different answers. 
And nobody can agree on whether to use critical power or maximal lactate steady state or functional threshold power to essentially measure the same thing, which is this other uh, threshold boundary. So when I talk about intensity domains, the moderate intensity domain is below lactate threshold. The heavy domain is between lactate threshold and critical power. And severe intensity domain is above critical power. And if you map that onto training zones, zone one, which you've, you'll have heard from polarized training, that's below lactate threshold. That's moderate exercise. Same thing. Zone two, heavy exercise between threshold and critical power. Same thing. Zone three, severe intensity exercise. And I know people kind of break zone three up into that zone four and five. So the zone three, four and five, depending on where you are in that particular that particular level. And that's why I think polarized training has had such an impact is because this misunderstanding of where the thresholds are or what the thresholds are also leads to misunderstandings of where to pitch your training intensity. And although I've got my own criticisms of polarized training from a physiological perspective, I don't think it's a perfect model. I think there are, there are aspects of it that can be criticized. What it does do is make athletes and coaches well aware of the fact that your easy session should be easy, your hard session should be hard. And if, you know, if you're going to do stuff in the middle, be careful about the amount of volume there because you're going to deplete a lot of glycogen. It's going to be hard to recover for the next session. It might then affect your really hard stuff. And it stops athletes from gravitating towards or regressing to the mean, if you like, where everyone has that pace of running they like running at or cycling at. And you, in your training, you will tend to gravitate towards that and will tend to end up in zone two. So kind of threshold training, whereas polarized training actually makes you consciously either work very hard or very easy. And I think for that reason, um, that has helped athletes get if you like the right level and, and be the right side of, of a particular threshold without necessarily having gone into a lab and find out what that is because everybody knows what easy should feel like everybody knows what hard should feel like the hard bit is actually getting the middle bit right and that's probably where you need physiological testing to really understand where it is and that's i think also why a lot of recreational athletes often have trouble with marathon running and hitting the wall and stuff because they're not entirely sure where those thresholds are. And that's crucial if you're going to be exercising for three or four hours where the event itself is going to be dependent on how much glycogen you've got and how much carbohydrate you can get into the system. That's going to be very difficult if you're too far above a particular threshold. You're, you're in trouble, basically. And that's what I'm trying to grapple with my next video is how how that relates to marathon running performance and glycogen utilization. So that's going to be probably that'll be out before this podcast out but that's the next thing i'm looking at is how you look at the lactate threshold from a, a practical perspective and how it how it impacts upon performance directly when do you, yeah. when do you think that Sorry. point fits in mark of when physiological testing is needed um i think if you're going to be doing something like a marathon where the capacity of your energy systems is important that's where you need physiological testing i'd also make an argument for ironman and ultra distance work not because you need to know where the envelope is as such but when i've uh, advised people doing say 12 or 24 hour bike rides i'll measure a lactate threshold and say right here's the heart rate zone you do not exceed because if you do, you're going to be into your heavy domain and then you're going to be increasing oxygen cost, increasing energy utilize and fuel utilization. You're not going to be able to sustain that. And the problem with it is those sorts of zones feel very easy for somebody in the middle of a race. But they're meant to feel easy because 10 hours down the line, it isn't going to feel easy. So, you know, you got your first three or four hours for free because you're in that in the right zone. And it's, you're going to feel like you've got loads left in the tank because you need it. So, And that's that's people who have not necessarily experienced that duration of exercise before really do need, do need to be reined in. And one of the ways of doing that is to show them their lactate plot and say, you know, if you go beyond this, you're in trouble. And that's why I'm recommending you go there. That's, that's great. Great advice. Thanks. Um, Mike, I know there's, there's one or two other 
questions you had around some of those topics. I don't know if there's you wanted to. Yeah, it was, yeah. It, was, it was more of a philosophical question, but um, you mentioned FTP, and it's definitely become the sexy kid on the block in the last five to ten years. It's more around your, your thoughts of why it's suddenly become the in thing. Um, well, I think th th there's a couple of couple of reasons. First of all, it's it's been quite heavily pushed in kind of the lay press or the the um, sports press. Um, so you know, if you pick up um, a cycling magazine or a triathlon magazine, a lot of the articles on scientific training will mention you need to be exercising at something of your FTP. So then it goes, everyone starts saying, "Well, I need to go out and find out what my FTP is." And then they'll go to training peaks or whatever, and they'll look at the definition, and then they'll go out and test it for themselves. They'll get a number, and then they start working everything around that number, and then the FTP becomes the thing that every it's the currency that everyone starts talking about. Um, the interesting thing about FTP is you almost you'll find almost no reference to it in the scientific literature at all. There's there's been a few papers in the last five to ten years that have mentioned it, but in scientific circles we talk about maximal lactate steady state and critical power and what functional threshold power really is is a practical measure that's related to critical power in that sense so um, if you read some of the um, websites that mention ftp they'll give you about five or six ways of measuring it one of the ways of measuring it is to go into a lab and have your critical power measured and that is effectively equivalent to your functional threshold power I think the other reason why it's become so uh, such a, a common thing is that a lot of people now have power measuring devices of one kind or another so they can actually get the number out, um, whereas previously they weren't able to. Uh, so back in my day when I was um, a teenager doing all this training, the big thing to get was a heart rate monitor. And everybody was working on heart rate training zones. So everyone wanted to know what their lactate threshold heart rate was and all that kind of stuff. Um, you, you don't see that much reference to that anymore because people are working off power, um, which is in, in a way good and a way bad, because when when you look think about exercise intensity, you really need to kind of get on top of three things. The first is some measure of performance, which could be speed or power output or something like that. Then you need some physiological guide. So what's actually what your body's doing as a result of the imposition of that? So your heart rate, um, usually heart rate's the only thing people use because it's it's the practical thing to do. I mean, you can get portable gas analyzers, but nobody's going to go out and spend 15 grand on that just to do their own training. So you can forget that. Um, and then the other one is perception of effort. So um, there's, there's a lot of uh, work around session RPE and things like that. So actually having a perceptual marker of uh intensity as well and usually having a combination of all three is probably the best way to go about working on uh your exercise intensity um, but the most objective of those three is probably the, the the power or speed measuring device your garmin or whatever and that's why people tend to use those uh smart watches or you know power meters or what have you and that's why i get i guess functional threshold power is one of the ones that's come to the fore of late yeah, yeah, I'm definitely a heart rate monitor boy, same generation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, so the use of metrics is one that uh, is a topic that comes up frequently, isn't it, on the uh, on the podcast, Mike? It's one that we've talked about, and the, the appropriate use of metrics to guide your training, both sort of in setting your training plan, but also during a session, how you might utilize them. And you mentioned power there. Um, one of the things we've talked about in the past as well is sort of this sort of um the advent of power monitors in running as well so yeah. i know assessment of power in running is something that's not as direct as it is in cycling so there are obviously issues around that and and different companies uh, measure it in different ways which doesn't help so you get different mm. values basically some some account for the elasticity in the tendons mm. uh, and, and some don't so you get mm. quite uh, big differences in values but I actually, I use power in my training and actually ties in with one of the things that you mentioned there in terms of, um, I think it's a very useful way of sort of setting thresholds that you don't go above in certain um, events to prevent you sort of moving into another zone that's going to come back and bite you later yeah. on. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on sort of power monitors for running. Uh, um, 
from a scientific perspective, I'm not the biggest fan in the world, so I wouldn't necessarily use one myself. But it's interesting what you said about using them to set thresholds, because um, from a practical perspective, provided the numbers they're giving you are reliable in the sense that if you go out and run at a certain pace on a you know on flat ground, certain pace, it gives you a number for power. It might be 300 watts or something like that. Provided you go out and run the next day in the same sort of conditions and it gives you the same sort of answer, so you know, it gives you 300 watts again. Whether it's 300 watts or 250 watts or 350 watts is not really relevant, provided it's giving you the same answer for the same stress. So provided it's got that level of reliability, um, I, I think it could they could be very useful devices. Um, the the problem is when you perhaps try and use them to to too fine grained an extent. So in other words let's say you want to run a marathon with them and you want to try and calculate your nutrition before the race and then your in-race carbohydrate feeding. And, you know, you might use those and it might have a function that tells you your calorie burn. Well, you know, that's, that's the point where I kind of get off and say, no, you're not going to, you're best not doing that because you're then making all sorts of assumptions about the relationship between power and VO2 and making an assumption that you're working in the steady states you're working an assumption on your running economy and whether that's changing over time so you certainly shouldn't be kind of you know looking at using it in that way but certainly as something that gives you a number that you can hang your hat on in terms of is this representing a particular intensity uh, whether the number makes any sense scientifically or not provided it's a reliable number i, I don't see a, a, a major problem with it yeah, I, th I think I'm pretty much aligned with, with what you're suggesting there as well in terms of its practical use. I, I, the, the one I use is um, is a polar, and I use it with the Stride foot pod, and yeah. that has been extremely reliable um, mm. in its use. Um, and I've sort of looked at that quite closely over time, and actually to the point where I could determine what power I thought I needed to run to run a 250 marathon uh, within sort of one or two watts, and it proved. Mm extremely accurate um, yeah, yeah doing that as well so i think it's useful that and actually does give you that benefit a couple of benefits one is that it takes into account gradients yeah uh, as long as uh, what i found as long as it's a, a runnable gradient so if you're on the mm. road running then that seems very reliable i think once you get out off on the trail and you start getting to sort of 30 40 percent gradients mm. um where you're having to walk i think it falls down they're probably not yeah. designed yeah. But the other one is obviously the lagging um, in heart rate. You know, there's always that time for the heart rate to catch up with yeah. any change in intensity or yeah. early in a race um, mm. where the, obviously the power output is instant um, mm. foot pods. So I think there are benefits there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so interesting to get your perspective on that. Um, anything from you, Mike, on that one? Or should we? I've had very similar feedback myself with the, with the running meters. I'm fascinated by. It. I'm interested to see where that goes. Mm. Um, and and I think I think you're right there, Ian. I think um, I think that's the next thing I'm I'm watching closely. Mm. Yeah, uh, another thing that was quite interested in sort of talking about that alludes to actually one of the videos, um, the fundamentals uh, fundamentals of exercise testing video. You you talk about different tests and their usefulness. Um, one of the things that we also like to sort of cover on the podcast is um, trying to encourage people to be more sort of critical of the research evidence that they might hear sound bites around. Mm. Um, and uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, they, they, there are obviously issues in terms of when people quote there's an X percentage change in performance mm. uh, as a result of this intervention in research. Well, w depending on what you're actually measuring as your performance outcome can have a marked difference on whether five percent is a, a large amount or it's, a, yeah. it's 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 not a large amount so just you know what your thoughts are on that in terms of different tests and and, and how they might be relevant to people's what might be the more relevant tests for people's race performances mm. um, yeah it's an interesting one because i mean the, the classic one is the, the kind of lucasade ad that says you know lucasade is going to increase your performance by 33.3 percent and you kind of think well a that's quite specific and b when you look at the research it's based on 
I think it was shuttle running from Loughborough where they did six minutes in one test and then nine minutes in the other. And you kind of think, well, how does that relate to anything that anyone's going to do in the real world kind of thing? And I think it is important that people understand that when you hear about a percentage change in something, it is really crucial to understand what kind of test they used for it. So in the, the case of uh, the, the Lucas aid I just mentioned, they were essentially doing a time to exhaustion trial. And in time to exhaustion trials, you have, uh, you know, you basically go at a certain speed or, you know, certain um, power output and you hold on until you can't go any further. And in that case, you can get quite seemingly quite large changes in performance. So we, we did some studies on warm up exercise and or priming exercise, doing high intensity warm ups. And we did one study where we did time to exhaustion rides and another study where we did time trials. And in the time to exhaustion rides, we saw a 30 to 60 percent increase in time to exhaustion. And then in the time trials, we saw a two to three percent increase in mean power output. So, you know, one headline is 60 percent increase in performance. Another one is three percent increase in performance. Which one are you going to go for? Well, they were exactly the same intervention. So it was just a different type of test that was used. So you need to be really careful about that. Um, so if you think about most athletic events are timed, and so the time trial is more relevant in terms of the amount of change in performance, uh, because if you think about the, you know, the difference between first place and last place in a, a, a race on the track is going to be about 4% perhaps if you've got quite, quite a wide range of abilities. And the difference between you know, first and fourth might be a fraction of one percent well there aren't any laboratory based time trials i've seen that are that have got that are that accurate so you know in terms of the effect of an intervention what you've got to look at is uh how reliable is the test that's been used and so and how big is the change in relation to the the normal variability in that test so it's really important that when, you, when you're doing these sorts of experiments that you familiarize your participants to that test and you give some indication of how variable they are under normal circumstances, because only then can you interpret how big the change in the intervention has been. So if you've got an intervention that improves performance by 2%, but your test has got a 5% variation in it, then you're basically measuring noise. You're not actually measuring something that's real. And, and there's an awful lot of literature out there that doesn't establish the variability in the test they're measuring, but they do find a statistically significant X percent increase in performance. And everybody kind of buys into that, but it's not necessarily a real change in performance. It's just that you've got lucky and you found your, you know, one time in 20 where you found a difference where there really isn't one. So yeah, you've got to be got to be a bit uh, wise to, to those sorts of claims. And uh, it's always interesting when I'm looking at um, things in that, that are advertised in magazines or whatever about how big a change in performance is, go back to the original literature and you can almost guarantee there's some something wrong with that particular interpretation because it's, you know, there's always, and it goes back to the Lucasay thing of, you assume that footballers can improve their football performance by 33%. Well, what does that even mean anyway? But they're not going to suddenly, you know, go from doing a 90 minutes to, you know, doing the whole of extra time just because they've taken LucasAid because they only did this over a few minutes. So, you know, looking at that difference in interpretation is also important. I'd, I'd literally scribble down. They had John Barnes plugging it towards footballers and yeah, yeah. they use the tagline of it's in balance with your body fluids and all yeah, of this yeah. stuff and and he'd been he'd been oiled up and sprayed up and it just gave that misconstrued mm. belief that if you were a, a footballer watching this you're thinking right this is for me yeah and yeah. um and yeah but, and we know they, they would have made tens of millions hundreds of millions yeah. of pounds out of out of that pitch yeah, I remember Joe Dow saying to me, oh, there's all this uh, stuff about sports drinks. And this was back in the 1990s when they were really starting to market sports drinks very heavily. And he said, oh, yeah, I, c I could get you a sports drink for threepence a pint. He said, yeah, what, three parts water, one part orange juice and a pinch of salt, every bit as good as anything else out there. And he's got a point, to be honest with you. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of marketing hype on these sorts of things. And I think hydration and uh you know carbohydrate supplementation is, is one of the really big ones that you know over the years has had quite a lot of uh 
controversy associated with it. That's not to say that carbohydrate drinks don't work, but they've, you know, often products have been over-egged in terms of their ability to improve your performance. And then and many of these stories, particularly with those drinks, where so they've come up with a scientific formula that might meet mm. those numbers in testing. They they test it with a focus group and it tastes awful. So they start yeah. changing the constituents for the taste flavor. So even the product you're buying isn't actually the product they've studied. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah. We're, we're making everybody now pour their drinks down the sink as they listen. But, <laughs> yeah. You just, just be judicious and diligent in, in the things that you believe and, and pay attention to. Hmm. And yeah. If you what you need to do, you jump out on a certain YouTube physiology channel and yeah <laughs> i'm surprised you're not scribbling notes here man there's loads of videos coming up. it's all it's all going in the head yeah, yeah. <laughs> now i think there's definitely something there isn't it in terms of the sort of the marketing and obviously you're always trying to sell the new product and i think recently we've seen that shift towards obviously this the sort of the the dual fuel type thing has, yeah. has been one way of sort of selling new products but i think the uh they also try to tie things into what people's experiences are as an athlete and stomach issues with products has been another one that recently yeah. with the sort of Morton products and so on, uh, people, uh, it's been a new idea and concept that then sort of allows people to market new products. And I think that sort of stomach comfort is one. It's not just Morton. There's a number of companies that yeah. are now marketing products that are, are meant to be, you know, something that you can continue to, to use in uh, extended events, which, mm. you know, most people uh, and a lot of the people that listen to this podcast will have experienced uh, stomach discomfort in, in events once you go beyond sort of three, four hours uh, yeah. and you're trying to take a lot of these products. So you can see why they're sort of uh, targeting that. Mm. Um, I think just on that topic in terms of sort of apply it, so as we go to those sort of longer events, I think there's something that's quite interesting to discuss in terms of the applicability of the research evidence that's available today on physiology and training, but also, and related to that, the difficulty in doing research on ultra-endurance events. So just on those sort of two topics, I wonder what your thoughts are in that in terms of whether people sort of misapply findings from research on, you know, exercise testing that might be so one to two hours for events that might be 10 hours plus but also you know what what are the challenges in doing that type of research and what evidence do we have available um yeah i think uh, if if you'd asked me that question 10 years ago I'd, I'd be saying something along the lines of it's very very challenging because most of the research that's done in endurance performance is necessarily of up to 90 minutes and then you know, sometimes two hours there, there's a few studies that go as long as three or four hours but very little beyond that uh, but uh, Millet's work that's been published pretty frequently in the Journal of Applied Physiology looking at ultra distance uh, work so that I think they did one study where they were looking at the fatigue response to a 24-hour run so there are now and I think it's because of the fact that there's there's been such a growth in ultra endurance events and also the, the growth in ultra endurance participation is that that's now starting to feed into research questions uh, which people are asking. And of course, you can't do this research unless there are people willing to do that research with you. And there aren't that many people who will happily volunteer to run for 24 hours in a laboratory. There are some. But there aren't that many. Um, but there are because of the growth in in interest in in ultra endurance events and people doing it. People who are actually students at university um, and some members of staff at university who are interested in this stuff also want answers to physiological questions, and they're therefore quite happy to be the guinea pig. And so we are starting to see these things come through. The question then is, what do you actually? want to measure what do you think the limiting factors are and that's where we're sort of flying blind a bit because we've got a pretty well we've got a very good understanding of the, the the limitations to exercise for severe exercise because you can test this thing repeatedly you know you, you're getting to task failure in you know between five and 20 minutes so you can get somebody in three times a week to look at different interventions with that when you're talking about somewhere where there might not be a time to task failure because you just you're running so 
at, so at such a relatively modest pace that you can sustain that for 24 hours, what factors do we need to look at as physiologists in terms of what are the limiting factors? Are we looking for mechanical things? Are we looking for biochemical things? Are we looking for psychological things? Um, or are we looking at central fatigue in terms of are we looking at changes in the motor pathway that we need to to take account of so it makes if, if if there is a difficulty the difficulty is how do you generate hypotheses when there's so little information about the limits to start with and i think at that point it's where scientists and i think millet's done a really good job of this is he actually talks to his participants and asks them of their experiences of kind of late race performance and late race perception you know, and what what is act? What do they perceive is breaking down? And then you've actually got something to hang your uh, empirical hat on, and then start designing experiments around that. And it's not some. It's not an area I've worked in, so I couldn't necessarily say what the the ins and outs of that are. But it's because of the the extra experience and the kind of the feedback you can get from people who've experienced this stuff. You know, that's where you can start putting putting hypotheses together and start putting studies together. So I think uh, in the last 10 years or so, and certainly in the next 10 years, watch this space, because I think there's going to be a lot more evidence coming to the fore about what the uh, physiology of ultra distance work is really all about. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that, that sort of the adaptation in methods and using alternative methods to sort of generate hypotheses, I think is interesting because mm -hmm. it is so far removed, but also that move between sort of that common, possibly combining different disciplines and the need to do that in the ultra endurance yeah. events. But I think there's also that sort of move towards sort of more ecological sort of in the field testing as well, because doing something for 20, 24 hours in the, in the lab just brings in a number of other challenges that might not actually be one of it might put might be a limiting factor in the lab but might not be out in the field so boredom yeah. obviously yeah. being one of them but yeah they obviously the, the the heat and and the sort of thermal issues that you have when you're not actually moving if you're on a treadmill or on a yeah. static bike, um actually introduce other limiting factors yeah. that might not be out in, in the field so yeah, I yeah. think that all kind of all, also brings all the things we've been talking about together in terms of wearable tech and power meters and you know running power meters, those sorts of things. We're we're in a situation now where we can acquire so much more data in the field than we could even ten years ago, um, and 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 it be more reliable. And there's there's now they're starting to think about putting you know wearable sensors on the skin that might be able to pick up sweat lactate and that might relate to blood lactate and those kind of things. Um, uh, they're going to develop over time because you know people want them and need them. So, I think as we go forwards, more of the research evidence is going to come from in the field measurements. And I think some ultra endurance events lend themselves better than others to, if you like, more controlled experiments. So you you know you now have the ability to pace somebody around a track properly because you've got the lights going around the track. So you could actually set up an experiment doing that. But of course, there are you know, long duration runs that are based upon a 400 meter track and how many laps you can do in a certain period of time. So over 12 or 24 hours. So, I mean, to most normal people, that sounds quite boring, but it's a hell of a lot less boring than running on a treadmill for 24 hours. Um, silly as it sounds, if you're going round and round in circles, but it's also you know that much more controlled so you can actually get i think you know there's, there's plenty of tracks that are based on university campuses where you can also bring you know perhaps you know, biopsies on the side of the track that those kind of things you can actually practically do now and you you know you can have tubs of liquid liquid nitrogen on the side so you can snap freeze these things and then take them back to the lab and you can have a bunch of people doing the biochemical stuff while they're still running around the track so yeah, there's all sorts of inventive ways of, of using, you know, hardcore laboratory techniques, but in the field now where, you know, 10 years ago, we probably weren't capable of doing that. The gut, the gut instinct, this side of the fence, Mark, is alongside those progressions. <clears throat> Our sports science generally is has seeped into the, the world of the recreational athlete. There's uh, an eagerness and awareness and an interest from the athletes to be part of these types of studies. Mm. you see that yeah i think so and um I mean, one of the nice things about uh, my time at aberystwyth was i got involved with the istwith cycling club and um 
the, the great thing about that is they obviously wanted to do the testing so they could get their thresholds and their, their uh, training intensity sorted out. But there was also a wide variety of different uh, cyclists within the club, people who worked on the track, people who were ultra endurance and uh, age group triathletes, all kinds of different people. And it meant that you could sort of tailor studies to particular groups of athletes within the club. So um, that helps as well. So when you do find that you've got these ultra endurance guys as kind of one seam of a particular club, provided the club's big enough, then you've automatically got a cohort that you can build a study around and they can have again chip in with you know, their own performance insights. And also asking participants how particular experiments felt. And you know, if you're doing an intervention, how did that intervention feel? Because you might show no great change in performance, but if they just felt, if, if a large number of the participants on a double blind trial felt better under one condition, then, you know, feeling good is is one of those things that can actually enhance performance as well. So um, those, those sorts of bits of feedback are also really, really useful. And I think, you know, to, talking to Ian as a sports psychologist, these kind of multidisciplinary approaches to performance problems is something we always talk about. We don't often necessarily do because we often academically, we end up being quite siloed in our own institutions. Um, but it's something that really needs to happen more and more. And I think that's one of the things that Team GB and the EIS did really well was bringing those people together for the elite groups. But now it's the, the sort of thing we can do with recreational athletes as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you mentioned there that um, the EIS and it's sort of in, in the applied um, organizations people have been able to do that much more effectively it seems than in academic institutions yeah. but I think for the, some of the types of research that you, you were talking about there and the more you move towards that sort of ecological model of in the field testing um, again it sort of highlight I've written down in my notes here sort of more interdisciplinary work and multidisciplinary mm. work is, is really needed and mm. interesting that uh, you, you mentioned there that once you start working with groups of athletes and actual clubs where you've got that sort of you've probably got a better dynamic with them you just automatically start to get that information back from them but obviously if you've got people from that a disciplinary background that allows them to sort of understand and interpret that feed, that data that you're getting uh, better then obviously that's that's going to benefit the research ultimately isn't it so yeah yeah um, yeah, interesting. I think we were thinking on similar lines there. Um, just re realise that we've kept you for quite a long time, moment, so we should probably look to sort of wrap things up um, fairly soon. But Mike, any, any other other questions, topics that you wanted to cover? No, I think I think you um, you answered it in the last question. The last thing I had was what do you see is the next big thing, and um, we sort of touched on that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, go on. Now. No, I was, I was going to say I'm not an, actually entirely sure what the next big thing is going to be, but I think um, where we are with um, training and performance and the ability to measure all of these things, I think the you know the ex, we're at a point now where the thresholds that we, we mentioned right at the beginning, we're at a point where we're able to measure them quite relatively easily in the field and so what i think it's going to what what the next phase of you know, the, the role of sports science in in performance is going to be is that there's going to be a lot more um it, it, it's going to percolate through a lot more to the rec recreational level and and you're actually going to be able to um, use these thresholds in a meaningful way um using things like running meters power meters heart rate monitors and that kind of thing, partly because they are more affordable, um, but also because, you know, hopefully part of the, the reason for doing my YouTube channel is if we can get people to understand these things more, then you take a little bit more of the guesswork out of, of training and racing um, without making it essentially just a scientific exercise, because there's always going to be the human element to any performance. And I think that that has to be you know, respected as well, that we, we're not just kind of working with machines and trying to kind of do everything, you know, hard science. There's there's kind of the beauty of the race as well, that all of these things really should be there to enhance your experience of, of racing and competition rather than to straightjacket you. So I think we need to kind of be mindful of that as well. 
Yeah, I think that's um, that's a, a great place to end, isn't it? Whatever we do going forward and however we can use sort of research evidence to benefit our performance, ultimately we still want it to be a sort of a, a true performance and, a, a, and ultimately something that's enjoyable uh, and that we maintain our passion about and it doesn't yeah. become too, too scientific. Um, mm. in that. But um, yeah, no, th- thanks so much for coming on. I think the, uh, I think our uh, the listeners are going to really enjoy uh, some of that and hopefully um, they'll also get a chance to have a look at some of the videos and uh, and you start to get more of that sort of public engagement that you're obviously looking to try and promote um, yeah through the- it's perfect yeah, thanks very much thanks very much for inviting me it's been great yeah it's been great and we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more about the book as it progresses so we yeah. wish you that yeah cheers yeah thanks Mark. all right cheers thanks a lot yeah thanks a lot mark cheers okay. bye